So Sam, it's a big week this week, isn't it? Oh, it really is. I mean, after a year off, I think we're ready for it more than ever. Indeed, Eurovision is back round again. What do you like about Eurovision personally? I mean, what's not to like about Eurovision? It's just so much fun, and I think it's actually the exact thing we need right now. Don't you agree? Absolutely, I find the voting absolutely fascinating in terms of who's not going to vote for whom. Any thoughts on any of the entries for this year? I mean, I was such a big fan of last year's Iceland entry, so I'm I'm glad to see that their act is back with another dose this year. But it seems like France are the ones to watch, which is unusual. But yeah, how about you? Well, I'm afraid、um, living across the other side of the world, Eurovision is not quite a big hit, so I don't usually see who the frontrunners are. <laughs> But nevertheless, it is definitely a highlight on my calendar that I cannot wait to wake up to find out the results are. Anyway, let's click on with today's episode. It's Saturday, the fifteenth of May, twenty twenty-one, and this is ballot to talk about. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of ballot to talk about. In fact, this is episode thirty-three in which we're doing. So that's quite a significant milestone. Joining me as always is Sam from halfway around the world. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Yes, are you?、Uh, I'm doing not too bad myself.、Um, I'm very much like we say in introduction. We're very much looking forward to Eurovision. Does seem to be a bit of return to norm- normalcy and normal service. Before we start, I thought that we should definitely say that as the Indian variant continues to run ravage around the world,、uh, many countries, including here in Singapore, has announced that it's re- reimposing some restrictions. So I guess I suppose I now feel what you felt in the middle of last year, I suppose, and it's quite a fast accelerating variant of COVID nineteen, and so therefore, to all our listeners who are listening out there, please stay safe wherever you are. But thankfully, Sam, we're both doing an activity that won't be much affected right now, aren't we? No, I mean we're very used to having to do this over Zoom, and we're we're much enjoying that. But yes, absolutely, please do stay safe wherever you are. And look after yourselves. But I think it's time for a bit of normal podcast service. So, what have you been following in the news this week, Chern? Well, I've been、um, following on some news that have been brewing for some time, but we finally saw its climax this week, which is that Liz Cheney, who was、um, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, was、uh, removed by a voice vote as chair of the House Republican Conference. This is basically the third ranking position within the Republican Party. This is despite the fact that she won a vote confidence of 145 to 61 in February 2021. Liz Cheney was largely removed because she had continued to remain vocal about the role of Donald Trump in the Republican Party, and she also voted to impeach him in the vote that subsequently followed. Taking over her role is Elise Stephanie, who is a representative from upstate New York. And what is fascinating is that her voting record, according to the Republican Party, is about twenty percentage points lower than Liz Cheney. And by some other measures, like the American Conservative Union, she polls, I think,、uh, a mid forty percent loyalty range, which is actually suggests that her platform is not particularly conservative itself, or aligned the ideals of the Republican Party. It's probably why she drew a challenger in Representative Chris Roy from Texas, who ran. On a more conservative platform, but nonetheless,、uh, challenge that she dispensed relatively easily. So, Sam, first of all, what changed between February and May that made Liz Cheney's relatively safe position then much more vulnerable、uh, that led to her ouster this week? I mean, I don't think much changed in terms of Liz Cheney's attitude or what she'd been saying in the media, but it seemed to be what the real clincher was is that. Earlier last week, she released a and she published an op-ed in the Washington Post, which was talking about her desire to adhere to the Constitution and once again resurfacing these accusations against President Trump. And it was seen as the big turning point in terms of, particularly Kevin McCarthy turning against Liz Cheney. And once the the leader of the Republican Caucus in the House of Representatives turn against her. Really, the entire party did because it was him that was seen as the person who actually managed to allow her to survive that vote of confidence back in February as well. So I think it was really that Washington Post article that changed things. 
in, and I, I think you are absolutely right there because the fundamental contours within the Republican Party have not really shifted that much between February and May. I, I read somewhere that Kevin McCarthy criticized Liz Cheney for not adhering to a certain amount of message discipline. Is that a convenient excuse? I think it kind of is. I, I think really... Kevin McCarthy didn't want the atmosphere to become too hostile back in February, but feels like there's enough political oxygen to allow that to be vented off now, because I don't think the attitude within the wider Republican Party towards Liz Cheney changed at all. I think, to be honest, if they felt like it was politically expedient to remove her back in February, she would have been removed um, after her vote against the president in the impeachment trial back in February. It's definitely interesting that the, what seemed to have been brewing for three or four months has finally been able to let off steam. And so therefore, is Liz Cheney um, more dangerous now being on the uh, so-called the backbench, as we prefer to in Westminster politics? Um, because now that she's not bound by whatever leadership role she had to play or messaging discipline, as Kevin McCartney called it, mm-hmm. You know, the fact that she has already got an NBC interview with Samantha Guthrie sort of shows the pull that she's able to bring. So therefore, is an, are now unleashed this chain a greater threat now? Well, to be honest, I think in terms of messaging, she's been unleashed for this whole time. And I don't think her removal actually changes much in that regard. I mean, she's definitely more vocal now she's being removed because she's seen as a symbol to the mainstream media of that wing of the Republican Party and has come to represent it. But in terms of being dangerous to the Republican Party, I'm not sure because I don't think the wider Republican Party is actually listening to her or agrees with her. And I think Elise Stefanik's appointment serves as an illustration of that because they have appointed someone to replace Liz Cheney, who is exactly the kind of thing that Liz Cheney has been criticising. So... I'm not sure. More vocal and bolder, yes. More damaging, I'm not sure. Time will tell. And and to be honest, you do wonder whether the removal of a number three Republican post nearly one and a half years before the midterms, you know, will voters actually care? And the answer is probably not a lot. Uh, Let's turn now to Elise Stephanie for a little bit. Um, what difference will Lee Stephanie bring to the role of House Republicans uh, as chair of the House Republican Conference? Probably a much more loyalty to Donald Trump as a start, but is there any other differences do you think she'll bring? I mean, Trump loyalty is everything about this appointment, to be honest, because she was someone who Donald Trump has been praising while he was the president, actually, as a rising star in the Republican Party. Bizarrely, I think she's actually much more liberal than Liz Cheney. So Mm. in terms of conservatism, I think it's actually gone in the liberal direction. I mean, specifically, she has quite a moderate voting record on LGBT rights, as one example. But I think that illustrates where Trump's grasp on the Republican Party has taken the party, which is away from its conservative ideals. Because let's be honest, Liz Cheney and the Cheney family are like the epitome of conservatism in terms of mm. ideology and bringing to the Republican Party. And Stefanik and the Trump wing is more towards uh, populism and a cult of personality, which is a very different style of politics. So I think above anything in this role, rather than adhering to ideology, is going to be adhering to personality and uh, adhering to the kind of policies Trump wants to instill in the party, rather than what the party's ideological ideals would tell it it wants to do. Indeed. I mean, for example, the imposition of tariffs is actually quite a left-wing protectionist idea. Mm -hmm. You know, if you believe in the free markets and liberal conservatism, you should let the markets decide rather than government intervention. And like you say, it is very much a Donald Trump's Republican Party at the moment. And and that's the biggest thing we can say about what the modern GOP is. It's basically how loyal you are to the president, not only in um, your voting record or with many motions the Democrats want to bring up against him, but also what you say to the media is also now particularly important as well, you know, given that how television obsessive this pres- the former president is. And I don't think that could be discounted in itself. Just, just as an additional question to you, what do you think Liz Cheney will do with this prominence in terms of representing the moderate part of the Republican Party? I.e., do you think she's going to run for president? Do you think she will do anything with this new exposure? 
I don't know, to be honest, because let's be honest, she might be, given the House is elected every two years and the next elections to 2022, you know, Wyoming's a very safe seat, which is her seat that she represents in Congress. I could very much see a more Trumpian Republican candidate uh, challenging her in the primaries. And I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure whether she will survive or whether the Cheney name is strong enough to survive even there. Um, so, so that so the jury's out on that. And so therefore, to what extent our political ambitions could survive beyond that, I think is certainly one uh, debatable. Mm -hmm. I doubt that she can become speaker given the bridges she's burned to so many of her Republican colleagues. The Senate potentially, but already one uh, one uh, John Barrasso is the has been there for uh, for about ten years or so, and the vacancy for the other Senate seat only just opened in the last election cycle. So beyond, there is very little hope to advance to the Senate in Wyoming, and she will probably face a crowded field as well. So I don't really know, to be honest. Um, it remains to be seen. Do you have any ideas about what she could potentially do? No, I'm not really sure. I mean, you're very right to point out that her immediate problem could be getting primaries shortly into the next year. Um, and that's something she's going to have to focus on if indeed she wants to remain in this Republican Party representing Wyoming on behalf of a party that she seems to so profoundly disagree with. But I mean, she said herself after she'd been removed that her goal for the next few years is to do everything in her power to stop Trump re-entering the Oval Office. So it will we'll have to wait and see what she does with that power and how she intends to fulfill that aim. I just want to make one point and ask you one final question is that don't forget if you look at Utah next door is that uh, many of the plain states there has been a little revolt against Trumpism and what he stands for mm -hmm. but nonetheless it's very much there still will vote Republican nonetheless but there is a little unease in some of these plain states in regards to the Trumpian ban of Republicanism and the other thing I noticed is that um, Liz, um, Elaine Stephanie won her vote by 134 to 46 now, Liz Cheney won in February, got 145 votes. Actually, Liz Cheney got endorsed for a position, got more votes for her endorsement position back in February than Liz Cheney, uh, than at least Stephanie has. I mean, even if 134 in the Republican caucus of 206, it suggests that with only 46 votes voting against her, it suggested that quite a lot of the caucus abstained as well. So is this mm -hmm. a worry for at least Stephanie is herself? given that she only pulled 134 votes? Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting to watch because I, I noticed also that it was Iowa Senator Johnny Ernst as well was criticising the way in which Liz Cheney was removed. So it seems that there's some sort of... there is it, it, The Republican Party is not uniformly against the kind of position that Liz Cheney is espousing, but it does certainly seem by those numbers that these people are definitely in the minority. So whether they can continue to be a vocal minority or not remains to be seen. But I thought it was interesting that people in the other chamber were also defending Cheney's position as well. Indeed. And we'll be watching out, as I'm sure we all are, to further upheavals within the Republican Party. And, and we should say the one and a half years is a long time in politics. The Republicans look very much out after Barack Obama won the 2008 election. And two years later, they stormed back for 63-seat gain and retook the House. So by no means, we have much more smaller room to play that the Democrats might be feeling more secure tonight than they did a couple of days ago, isn't it, Sam? Indeed. And I think that's a good moment to pause, and we'll be right back after this. Hello, and welcome back to Ballot to Talk About. We will now move to talk about our main content of her today, which is the results in uh, to the Scottish parliamentary elections that took place on the 6th of May. Uh, counting took place over two days and uh, Friday and Saturday, and it revealed that Nicola Sturgeon returned as First Minister with the SNP winning 64 seats, just one short of its much discuss discussed majority that it wanted, and a gain of one seat over its 2016 performance. And we will continue to watch Scotland because it's going to be one of the most talked about regions and fascinating given that, as I'm pretty sure we are going to talk about over numerous podcasts, independence is very much going to be on the table. So just to go through some of the seats won by the other parties, the Conservatives won 31 seats, which is the same as it did in 2016. 
Labour got 22 seats, which is down two from what it got in uh, 2016. And the Greens also gained some seats and the Liberal Democrats lost seats as well. But first overall, before we talk, Sam, about the individual um, parties, are you surprised by the results? Um, personally, I was predicting Nicola Sturgeon's Scottish National Party to be able to just about get together a majority. So the fact they fell one seat short was a bit of a surprise to me. But we did observe some shifts in the opinion polls in the last few weeks, which were trending downwards for the SNP. So I guess in some respects, it doesn't come as a surprise. I mean, one of the big surprises for me, frankly, was just how little the composition of the Scottish Parliament changed. Because let's not forget that these elections last took place in 2016, in May 2016. So at that point, David Cameron was still prime minister and the European referendum had not taken place. That's that's the kind of world we're living in here. And to think that five years after that, barely any seats changed hands, I think is frankly astonishing. I don't know what you think, Chern. Absolutely. I think you're exactly right. And that was the main point I was going to make is the fact that so little of the political map has changed the last five years. I mean, recently compared to Wales, where we saw the complete disappearance of that UKIP vote, and mm-hmm. that had a profound shift in terms of share the vote and seats of both the, of the Conservative Party in particular. So there was very, and you know, even in some of Labour seats, it, there was a sort of dramatic increase in vote. And there didn't really appear to be that kind of shifts a, appearing to the same extent in Scotland. So I would totally endorse that. And the other thing I wanted to say is that I noted that turnout was significantly up in this election compared to the previous elections. Turnout in the 2021 Scottish elections was 63.5%, which in a normal uh, parliamentary election was considered very good, not just even for a regional election itself. And in fact, it is an increase of 7.7 percentage points over what happened last in the last election in 2016. What were some of the drivers of this increase in turnout and who do you think benefited from it the most? I mean, firstly, I think it's important saying that Scotland has had a pretty good record over the last five years in terms of turnout. Its turnout in the 2019 general election was higher than the rest of the rest of the UK. And let's not forget, back in 2014, in their independence referendum, turnout was extraordinarily high for something taking place in the UK. So I think voters in Scotland are much more politically energised, it would seem. And that brings me to the answer to this question that I think the independence cleavage definitely plays a big role here because I think whatever position people take on the independence issue, they tend to be quite passionate about it and want to exercise that view at the ballot box. So to have a turnout of 63% is is incredibly impressive, considering that in some local elections in England, the turnout is as low as 30%. So this is quite something. So I think they were motivated by the independence cleavage and wanting to express a position on that. And more broadly, on Nicola Sturgeon, who is one of the most popular politicians in the UK, but is also a very polarising politician. So I think she, as an individual, also brings people to the ballot box in a way that other people across the UK don't have that kind of power. Certainly, if you compare it to the results of the Welsh elections, I mean, turnout was about half there and barely changed very much. Who do you think it benefited of this increased turnout? Did, did people want to go out and not necessarily one who previously would have voted for, they wanted to cast a personal vote for Nicholas Sturgeon? Or is it because unionists, soft unionists realise the states involved in this and therefore turned out to vote? I think it benefited everyone across the board. I think if we'd have seen it benefiting a specific side, we probably would have seen a lot more upheaval in the results versus 2016 than we did. I think it kind of benefited everyone to have an increased turnout. And I mean, more broadly, I think an increased turnout benefits politics in general because it shows that people are engaged. And I think that's good news for everybody involved. Indeed. And just a quick thing about turnout. I mean, in raw vote numbers, the Conservatives got the highest number of votes ever in both the constituency and the regional list. So clearly they found some extra votes from an increased Mm -hmm. turnout as well. But... Before we talk about the unionist side, let's look at the governing party, the SNP, the main party, the nationalist bloc. Indeed, indeed. So as we said at the top, the SNP gained one seat in this cycle to take them to a total of 64, which is just one seat short of an overall majority. 
and they actually gained three constituencies on the constituency side. But as we explained a few weeks ago, this can often come at the cost of regional seats because of the way that the uh, electoral system works. So Nicola Sturgeon has returned as First Minister and the SNP continue to lead the Scottish Government after 14 years in power, which for a sub-national party is quite something. And after failing to win some of their top targets, including their perennial top target, it would seem, of Dumbarton, the hopes for a second majority government quickly slipped away. But Chern, do you think the SNP will be disappointed with this result? I think they would be because they have come so close and yet so far from that, from the result. And I do wonder what the conversation would be if the SNP had actually got 65 seats and above as well. Part of why they mm-hmm. got reduced voice after the days after it is not only the fact they failed to get overall majority, but also the fact the Labour Party decided federally um, at a national level to go on a large bout of infighting. And the press love to talk about political parties infighting. Suddenly those of the the Labour Party itself. So I do wonder what kind of oxygen they would have had if they actually got the overall majority. So from that point of view, yes, a certain amount of legitimacy that they could have gained that they that they could have gained if they got overall majority. But nonetheless, I would say this: I think the SNP is also victim of their own expectations because makes member portion is one of the hardest systems in the world to gain overall majority in. And the fact the SNP got one from 2011, 2016 and proved that it could be done has meant that there is a benchmark that could be made that could be impossible, really. The fact they nearly broke the system, frankly, it should be celebrated by the fact that in their fourth term of government is frankly astonishing. And with an increased number of seats and an increased constituency vote to taking them nearly just under 48% mm-hmm. is astonishing. And from that point of view, I think should be seen as not a disappointment. but they will be perceived at this point based on the campaign they run and the history of what the parties achieved. I mean, you can talk to any political party in Germany about that. It's it's quite something to be able to get this close to a majority. But yes, I agree with you that I think they'd set their expectations at that level. So falling short of it felt like a disappointment. And on that basis, in terms of how we decided to classify the Welsh parties last week, would you describe the SNP as a winner, a loser, a bit mixed? What would you say? I think definitely a bit mixed. Um, like I said before, an increased constituency vote, uh, more seats than they got last time, fourth term in government should be celebrated. But the fact that their expectations are set that little bit much more higher makes me a little bit of a makes them a bit of a loser as such. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I will say this though, I th- if there was no Green Party we'll probably be sitting here talking about SNP overall majority. The fact that the Greens saw the biggest gain, they have to watch over their shoulder for potentially more leakages if the cleavages in Scotland is still on the independent unionist side. What do you think, Sam? Is that fair to describe the SNP as both a winner and a loser? I think so. I think it's fair. I think they were in a... It's, it's complex to assess this because quite clearly getting 64 seats in a 129-seat chamber and leading the government still after 14 years is a, is a big win. I think any party would take that as a win. But at the same time, in terms of where they could have been had this election taken place even a couple of months ago, I think, I think there will be, there'll be a bit of disappointment in the SNP ranks for sure. So on the SNP, obviously one of their big things taking into this election was they were wanting to gain a mandate for independence. Do you think failing to win a majority decreases the likelihood of them being granted a referendum or does it not change? To be honest, I I don't think it changed very much the contours of what happened, to be honest, because the independence bloc as such, the SNP and the Greens have a clear majority in the parliament. So they can pass an independence referendum but, you know, it's very easily. But Nicola Sturgeon has said it wouldn't happen in the next year, so she wants to focus on the COVID recovery. And Westminster is in no interest to give them one, even though mm-hmm. the yes vote has been not as high in terms of the opinion poll support as it was, you know, in the earlier, in 2020. I don't think Westminster is in the appetite to give them one. So therefore, I think the battle lines still remain the same before the election, after the election. And we're in that stalemate kind of a period of Scottish politics, really. So 
I don't mm-hmm. think very much has changed on the independence regard. We probably might still see an independence bill. It might still get rejected by Westminster. It will go through the judiciary and we'll very much wait and see what happens in that process. So do you think there will be an independence referendum agreed to within the period of this Scottish Parliament? Agreed to? No. But I wonder whether Scotland, particularly the fact that Nicola Sturgeon has failed to win an overall majority, might push the hardliners within her party or those that very much advocated a faster, more aggressive route against Westminster to do something like what Catalonia did, which is kind of decide on itself to hold a referendum and that might not be recognised by Westminster, then what the unionists themselves do at that stage and what the Westminster does in response will be very interesting to see indeed. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that there'll be some big constitutional questions to be asked in the next few years, for, for sure. I think Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson both believe that they'll be heading to the Supreme Court in some kind of form to talk about this as an issue, and I'm sure we'll be talking about that extensively. But independence aside, what do you think is the key to continued success of the SNP north of the border? Do you think it is exclusively the independence cleavage, or do you think there's more to it? It's hard to go beyond independence, if you ask me, to be honest. But nonetheless, I do think Nicola Sturgeon, particularly her performance over the last year, you know, the COVID bounce that we talked about, I won't be surprised if a significant minority of voters who I would describe as, you know, as we probably describe as soft unionists, voted for the SNP because mm-hmm. of Nicola Sturgeon's leadership. I do think the response of the government to COVID, not necessarily in terms of the numbers, but potentially in terms of the clarity that Nicola Sturgeon brought and the leadership that her charisma, certainly compared to Boris Johnson, many Scottish people's eyes, that was also a vote winner as well. Do you have any other ideas about whether it's beyond independence that attracted people to vote for the SNP? No, I mean, I completely agree with you there. And I think it's important to reiterate the fact that Nicola Sturgeon is the most popular politician in the UK in terms of approval ratings, and that must count for something. But as you said, I think it's very difficult to look beyond independence because apart from the Green Party, they're the biggest party who support independence, whereas on the unionist side, you have the Conservatives and the Labour Party, which are two titans of British politics. But I think the SNP do benefit from being the exclusively big independence party for sure. But the independence bloc doesn't just consist of the SNP. And I think that's an opportune moment to talk about the Greens as well, who also had a good night. And we said, I, probably we will both agree, were well, the biggest winners of the night. They gained mm-hmm. one seat in central Scotland off the Labour Party and one seat off the Liberal Democrats, the North East list. That means currently the only region in which they do not have any seats in South Scotland. Analysis also been done is that they actually came awfully close to winning that South Scotland seat of the SNP and to winning a second seat in Glasgow of the Tories, if not for the slightly confused, confusing name of the independent green voice, which because of the fact that parties are listed alphabetically, you voters would get to the independent green voice, which is letter I, before they get to the Greens on letter G. So um, whether they took votes off um, the Greens, who is who, if without independent Green voices standing, would those voters have voted Green and given extra two seats? Well, that is something for us to speculate in the future. But nonetheless, Sam, they failed in this election to win any constituency seats. In fact, the best hope of Glasgow Kelvin they came nowhere near in terms of taking the seat of the SNP and the SNP will return with an increased majority despite not having the incumbent MP Sandra White standing anymore. So do you think the Greens could ever win a constituency seat therefore? Or is it the SNP too dominant? I think the Greens are going to struggle to win a constituency seat. And to be honest, I'm not sure if it's voters or even its establishment believe that that's something that they want to do because on the constituency list they got one percent of the vote versus eight percent on the regional list so clearly its voters 
are banking on it being a regional party. And saying that, the Green Party only actually stood in 12 of the 73 constituencies on the constituency side. So I don't even think them as a party are trying to be a constituency party. And as you said, Glasgow Calvin, they got, I think it was 26% of the votes and came second, which was quite a strong performance for the Green Party. But as you said, the SNP majority is still 5,500, so they're not close to winning that. So I think the day we see a Green Party win a constituency seat in the Scottish Parliament will be a long time in the future unless they radically transform their performance over the next Parliament. So therefore, it's a more short-term ambition for them to win a list seat or maybe even two in Glasgow in every region. I think so. And I think that's a realistic aspiration for them. I mean, as you pointed out, the Green Independent Voice in uh, Glasgow and South of Scotland, actually. I mean, in Glasgow, the Green Independent Voice got 2,000 votes, where the Green Party was just a few hundred votes away from getting that second seat. So I think they'll find that quite frustrating. And I think their party has a big presence across all the regions in terms of um, its vote winning potential. And I think they, especially now that they'll probably have some policy influence in the government, given that the SNP are just short of that majority and the Greens are a natural ally, I think they'll have a nice platform to demonstrate their contribution to government going into the next election as well. So I feel like getting one list seat in every region is, is a realistic ambition for them. Indeed. And I also note that in the Lothian region, they actually got two seats, both now the newly, uh, newly elected presiding officer, Alison Johnston, and Lorna Slater, who is their co-leader as well, were both elected from the Lothian. So it suggests that mm -hmm. in the big cities, of, of big cities, there's room to take a second list seat off um, in, in, in those places, really. But nevertheless, I do think they will be very frustrated about the second Glasgow seat, they're not taking that particularly of the Conservatives, because Conservatives are banging the drum about the fact they held the number of seats yeah. on the list in both Glasgow and Central Scotland, which are traditionally the weakest areas of the Scottish Conservatives. And retaining that bragging right is particularly important and gave Douglas Ross a lot of authority. But we will talk about the Scottish Conservatives in a minute. I'm just curious, though, gro growing your seat count is one thing. What is his ambitions in terms of beyond that? Does it want to go into government with the SNP? I mean, I don't think anybody in Scotland really has any realistic short-term government ambitions because the SNP is just far too dominant. I think the Greens potentially have the ambition of going into government with the Scottish National Party, but I'm not really sure that that's what they're trying to market themselves as either. I think for them... Achieving eight seats like they did in this cycle was a major achievement and that they were really pleased with that kind of performance. And I think unlike other parties who are trying to really assert their influence in the Scottish Parliament, I think the Green Party are just happy to build their rack of MSPs and getting to eight, I think, was quite a good achievement for them. I think looking at Glasgow and Lothian regions, they got double figures on both of those regional lists, which I think is quite an achievement for them. And there's potentially more room for growth within the city regions, which is also what we see within the Green Party in England as well. Because look at Sean Berry, who I'm sure we'll talk about next week uh, in the London mayoral election coming in third place. I think that is the kind of aspiration that the Green Party will be looking for in Scotland is just to try and gain a bit of a bigger presence. And they couldn't quite crack that double figures regional list vote this time, getting only 8%. So potentially that is their short-term aspiration to get into double figures. Indeed. And to be honest, the fact that they came so close in South Scotland of 5% of the vote, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about the corrective list element. I think that's a very key point to say, um, to, to, to back up the argument as well. And finally, if the Greens were to reflect, what went right for them in this campaign? I think they have a two-prong secret to success here and what went right, because one of them is they are a pro-independence party, which helped them because they were, they were involved and they took a very specific position on the big debate of the election, and that's helpful. 
And I think that coupled with growing concern about the climate crisis in the general population, particularly amongst younger people, helps them as well. So they became a nice way to vote for in, in favour of independence and then an explicitly green platform as well. I mean, we talked about it before, but the COP26 taking place in Glasgow as well helps them here because there's a passion for green politics within Scotland at the moment. And it feels like something that is very much on the agenda. And more broadly, I think, and this is something we see with the Green Party nationally, not just in Scotland, is they're a nice vent for frustration with the Labour Party as well. So if you're someone on the left who feels like the Labour Party is not really listening to your concerns, the Green Party is a nice outlet for that. And that's very specific as well to what happens to the Green Party in England. But I think there's definitely an element to that in Scotland too. But there was another camp, and it's also useful to talk about the dynamics within the unionist camp. So let's start with the largest party within the unionist camp, uh, party, the Scottish Conservatives, shall we, Sam? Yes, I mean, if you agree with me, I think the Conservatives came out quite well in this election in north of the border because they equaled their best ever seat count in the Scottish Parliament, retaining their 31 seats they won in 2016. As you said at the top, they also got their highest number of votes ever in Scotland. And it was widely seen as a successful night for their leader, Douglas Ross, especially after his rapidly declining approval ratings in the past few months. I think he has put in a reasonably good performance in terms of how his party fared. And importantly for the Scottish Conservatives, they retained second place and the principal opposition party, which I think was one of their key goals for this cycle as well. And top SNP targets of Aberdeenshire West, Galloway and Eastwood were all held reasonably comfortably. In fact, most of them had increased majorities. And it largely seems like it was the success of the Conservative Party that denied Nicola Sturgeon the majority she so craved, because them holding on to those seats was, was quite crucial here. But talking about the Conservatives in Scotland more broadly, do you think that this Retaining 31 seats was the ceiling of Conservative expectations for this cycle, or do you think they realistically and privately hoped that they could improve on their position? Honestly, the, the Scottish Conservatives, I think, came out of the election pleasantly surprised more than anything else about how they performed. Mm -hmm. I think they, they were in quite low expectations, but the fact they maintained their seat count over Labour, and not by one or two seats, by quite a significant margin of nine mm -hmm. seats, was beyond their wildest expectations because I think many of them thought that we don't have that Ruth Davidson appeal now, you know, that, that a person who was able to reach beyond the traditional conservative is able to attract in Scotland. They were particularly very worried. And I briefly talked about the mm -hmm. fact they maintained their two list seats in Glasgow and three seats in central Scotland will particularly fill them with a lot of happiness as well that they were able to retain in places that's always been traditionally much more hard going for the party. So from that point of view, I think they didn't hope to improve on their position, but the fact that they drew level, they are particularly happy about it. Whether in the future elections they could potentially improve their results, I think there is still room for improvement on the constituency level. Now, Edinburgh Central, I would argue, is a once in a phenomenon. You need a Ruth Davidson type figure to be there, and I would be very surprised if the Conservatives took Edinburgh Central again. Air, I think without John Scott running again, um, he lost the seat in the 2021 election. Um, I doubt with jo without John Scott, we could see the Conservatives take Air. Although I do note that in 2017, the Conservatives did take the equivalent Westminster seat of Air, Carrick and um, Don Valley. But I think there is still some potential for the Conservatives to grow, particularly in that northeast shoulder of Scotland as well. So I'm looking at seats like Bamshire and Buck and Coast, where and Aberdeenshire East, which used to be represented by the former First Minister Alex Salmon, because in both those seats, the Conservatives share the vote increased 10 percentage points. And in fact, in Bamshire, it was a direct 10% switch between the SNP and the Conservatives, and both are now within their top target seats for the next election for the Conservatives. So there is definitely room to grow in the next election on a constituency level. But like I said, if you take a constituency seat off, you might minus that on the list. And the Conservatives have four seats in the Northeast. So whether overall they could make further gains, I do not know. But nonetheless, it will be symbolic for them to take 
more seats of the Northeast, which they already hold at parliamentary level in Aberdeenshire West and Murray already. And in South Scotland, I think they will achieve much bragging rights if they are able to overtake the SNP in terms of the number of votes in the regional list. They only came about four percentage points short. So very, very good achievement and puts them very close with a 16% Labour vote there to potentially be squeezed again. So if they are able to do that, take more constituency seats in the Northeast and also get their South Scotland list and to top the South Scotland regional list, I would think they would consider a further room for improvement. And do you think Douglas Ross is responsible for this? Or do you think it's something completely outside of his leadership? Because as we talked about, his approval ratings were getting pretty dire, to be honest. So do you think he is safe for now? Or do you think he is actually a positive force for the Scottish Conservative Party? Definitely he's safe for the foreseeable future. I think he brings a much more muscular, much more adversarial nature to unionism than Ruth Davidson ever did. And clearly it resonated to a certain extent, particularly among those quite hardcore unionists but tended to support Labour. I think that's what helped him. So potentially that's what helped Douglas Ross in in this election. I'm reminded of Tony Abbott, um, the former Australian Prime Minister, who also had record low approval ratings, but got one of the largest landslides in Australian history for his Liberal Party because of his relentless Mm -hmm. attacks on the Scottish SNP. And potentially that could be what is needed now, is that hardcore negative campaigning because as we both know negative campaigning works so maybe for this branch of it he need he if we're fighting election that is solely based on unionist cleavage potentially but i do fear for the conservative party if the election goes beyond unionism because frankly we did not see much for that during the campaign and i'm not sure mm-hmm. what his credentials could therefore stack up against the smp against that so it remains to be seen for that I think this will end up being a nice bridge between the Conservatives and the other big unionist party. But one big elephant in the room here is that there was strong evidence of tactical unionist voting taking place Mm. in favour of both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party in this cycle. Did you expect that? Or did it actually come as a bit of a surprise? Because to me, it felt like throughout the campaign, the Conservatives and Labour were trying to take very different lanes in this cycle. And there wasn't very clear, at least on the surface of Scottish politics, clear attempts to promote unionist tactical voting. So do you think this was quite a locally centric thing? Was it people making up their own minds privately that that's what they should be doing? I think, to be honest, it initially surprised me. But when I thought more about it, if if you care so passionately about the union, and you knew that the route for the SNP majority was through the constituencies, I then thought that it didn't actually, it made perfect sense, actually, to be honest, for there to be that extent of unionist tactical voting. You know, and unionist voters are smart enough to work out that if you live in Dumbarton, voting conservative will actually harm the unionist cause. Whereas if you're looking at Aberdeenshire West, as we talked about, which was outside of, uh, which was the number four, I believe, on the, target list for the SNP, the unionist vote there was actually the Liberal Democrat vote was down 13% there. And that went very much towards Alistair Burnett, whose vote went up 9%. And in Eastwood, which was Jackson Carlos constituency, you and I talked during the, um, before we started recording that, you know, mm-hmm. it was the Labour vote that suffered particularly heavy in those areas. So I think you would have looked at the last election in places like Aberdeenshire, West, Dumbarton, there was a clear unionist party that came first. And yeah. so therefore, unionist voters could easily tactical vote. I think that was particularly key. But let's say if you live in somewhere that you're, and there were a number of constituencies where both Labour and mm-hmm. the Conservatives were roughly neck and neck, I, don't, I think there was a signalling problem there because there was no clear unionist party to signal your vote to. And I will look, for example, in uh, Renfrewshire North and West, which was represented by uh, former minister Derek Mackay. And I noted that, you know, the Conservative vote went down by 0.7% and Labour went up 3%. So there was not much evidence of any tactical voting there. I think that's fair. So without further ado, the Labour Party. Indeed. 
And Sam, just overall, before we dissect the Labour Party's performance, were you surprised by how poorly they performed? I was, I was, um, because it really seemed, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, that Anasawa was transforming Labour's energy and the enthusiasm for the party and the understanding of what the party represents within this independence world. And yet they lost seats again. But then at the same time, were Labour going to win any additional constituency seats? No. Were Labour going to vastly increase on their regional list? Probably not. I think the only good thing that they maybe could have done is got a bit closer to the Conservative Party in second, but actually the gap increased again. So, yeah, I was surprised. Were you? I have to say I was surprised. I did think that Labour would at least gain seats of, and to a certain extent of the Tories, but that didn't seem to happen. In fact, I think they were hurt by the fact that the Tory vote was so solid in places like Central Scotland, where you would think that, you know, that 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 used to be the bulk of Labour support was in areas like Central Scotland. Mm-hmm. But what we saw actually is that they lost a list seat, their share of the vote fell 1%, and a Conservative share of the vote increased by 2%. And the gap in Central Scotland is now about 4%. Yeah, I mean, for example, the Eddie and Schott seat that was just had the by-election used to be a solidly Labour seat in that um, it was actually held by Home Secretary John Reid mm. and, and it was held until by Labour until 2015. And I think also Labour was disadvantaged by this tactical voting in a way that we didn't really expect because the Conservatives held more constituency seats anyway. So if tactical voting was going to take place on the constituency side, it was never really going to be in favour of the Labour Party. Although, as I'm sure we'll talk about, that's what saved Jackie Bailey in Dumbarton. But the Conservatives were always going to be the main beneficiaries of any kind of unionist uh, collaboration. And not only that, is that we had to compare against the last election in 2016. The Conservatives mm-hmm. got into not only second place, but also got a clear second place in many seats because of how well they did in 2016, how poorly yeah. Labour did. So therefore, as I talked about the signalling function earlier, it was much more easier for that third classic third-party squeeze to go mm-hmm. on there. And, you know, as we talked about Labour's conundrum, is that the centre-left bloc is very much more well-represented in Scottish politics. So you're voting centre-left, you could vote for the SNP if you like Nicola Sturge's COVID response. But if you're unionist, you could also then vote for the Conservatives. Another group of voters in Labour's coalition could then vote yeah. for the Conservatives. So they could potentially be squeezed in both areas, and that's not particularly helpful. And that could be probably why they went dropped two seats to 22, as I said, at the top. Of the, of, of the section and failed to win any of their target seats. And what's worrying for Labour is that going to the next election, they are currently their main target seat is East Lothian, a seat in which they lost in this election. And you could expect that in the next election, the SNP incumbent could get a little first term boost as such. And, and as we talked a little bit earlier, you know, Jackson Carlos vote increased by 6% and Labour's vote halved in that seat. But the bright spot is that deputy leader Jackie Bailey held on in Dumbarton against that. So for Anasawa, this must come as a disappointment for him, despite running a much better campaign. What's next for him? I mean, firstly, I think it's important to say that Anasawa had barely been leader of the Labour Party for, for just over two months before this election took place. So for him to undergo any kind of grand transformation of Labour's fortunes was going to be basically impossible and the fact that he has pretty positive approval ratings and is a much more recognized figure and in fact in his as we talked about uh he was running against nicola sturgeon on the constituency level and did quite well in that seat which i think was also a a good sign of his personal popularity so i don't think anasawa has anything to worry about in terms of his leadership of the labor party because i think He's widely seen as good news for the Labour Party and is playing a much longer game. As for their performance on the 6th of May, I think it will be undoubtedly a disappointment because for them to lose seats again on the back of 2016, which was widely seen as a car crash of an electoral cycle for Scottish Labour, is is really disappointing. And I think... The optimist in me is wanting to say that this was the remnants of the old 
perspective on the Labour Party and not Anasawa's leadership of the Labour Party. But that will remain to be seen, and I think that's what we'll be watching closely. But I think in terms of the short term, Anasawa's position is completely secure. Do you agree? I totally agree. His position is completely secure. I just wonder what the future of the Labour Party is. Mm-hmm. Is that in a parliament that we dominated by the I word of independence for after the next year or so, after COVID recovery has started to take foot, you had the SNP, the main nationalist party, and the Scottish Conservatives and Unionist Party, which they clearly parroted about being the two main blocks there. I just find there little political oxygen for Labour to get its message across and promote Anasawa. Yeah, I think he's he's disadvantaged basically by being a popular figure in an unpopular party. And that, mm. that is the disadvantage here. I mean, we saw across England really that when you have a polarised environment around a cleavage which distinctly has two sides we saw this in the brexit era across england it's very difficult for you to break through because naturally in an issue that has two sides there will be two big parties taking that over and quite clearly as you said the conservatives are the unionist party so if your key policy in the voting booth is unionism you're probably going to vote for the conservative party and i think anna sawa was beginning to figure out where Labour stands in that political world, where where you kind of don't want to take a position on the unionist issue, apart from saying we're pro-union, but we want to talk about something else. And I think it will take some time for that message to bleed through, but I think some figures in Labour will be taking some good news that Anna Sawa is at least beginning to try and solve this equation. And I think that will be the job for him over the next five years. And actually, I think not being the biggest opposition party and not being the biggest unionist party might come as a bit of a benefit to the Labour Party here, because if the debate is going to be all around independence for the next five years, as as the Labour Party in the position it's in, it's kind of helpful to not be involved in that, being able to have the political space and oxygen to work out what to do next, whilst the Conservatives and the SNP fight over independence. I don't know if you if that's a silly take or if you agree, but I think some in Labour might be actually quite pleased about the space to do that. I think there's a large dollar of truth about it, because if you look back to the last time the independence referendum happened in 2014, Scottish Labour was by far the biggest unionist party mm-hmm. then and had to take much more of an open position and one in which was it could clearly see was very divided and potentially out of message with that central Scotland and Glasgow region where were much more pro-independence than they were. Um, and that's what could have contributed to such a disastrous performance in both the 2015 general election and the 2016 parliamentary elections in Scotland. So yes, I think that time out of the limelight could help it as well. But how much does Beyond um, is brand national labour also at play here? Because what Ruth Davidson was particularly successful at was changing the Scottish Conservatives as quite distinct from that of Boris Johnson's Conservatives, for example. How much of that differentiation do you think Anasawa is capable of doing? I don't know if it's a question of how much he's capable of doing, but more to how much he wants to do that. I did note that his his relationship with Keir Starmer, at least over this cycle, seemed to be, at least from my perspective, quite distant. It, it, was, it seemed to be that they were very much running a Sawa-orientated campaign north of the border, not a Starmer one. And I think that's probably the right call, especially in this kind of climate. Um, but... I think the Labour Party in a very different ideological position than than Ruth Davison was in because Ruth Davison's problem was that she felt that the National Conservative Party were drifting further to the right than Scotland would tolerate. Whereas I don't think that's a kind of ideological question that Anna Sawa is going to have to answer. Uh, finally, we um, and before we round up and we talk about general overall implications for these results and what they mean for Westminster mm-hmm. politics, we talked about the fact that Labour has lost its base and whether you know they need to do brand repair, squeeze by third parties, whatever. What could be its new base in terms of constituency level or demographics that it could target? Because I haven't found these results don't tell me to in my eyes that there is an easy enough base as step one. 
what do you think it's where do you think it could be heading to in terms of a targeted base I mean that that is the big question for Labour to answer, and I don't think we're any clearer to answering that question. Whilst the SNP is such a prominent force, I mean, I got this statistic from the BBC where there were sixteen seats after this election, constituency seats with a single-digit majority, and Labour was only second place in one of them, which was East Lothian, which was the seat they lost. So even going into this election and coming out of it. The Labour Party don't have any particularly clear route to gain constituency seats, that's for sure. And in terms of the regional list, I think it's very difficult because you, in order to get multiple seats on the regional list, you really need to be performing extremely well in terms of your poll ratings. Um, and that's something that the Conservatives seem to have been doing quite efficiently in this cycle, where the Labour Party have not been able to do that. So. That's a very long way of saying, I don't really know where their votes are going to come from, um, but I'm sure that the next five years will be taken up by Anna Sawa and his team sitting down and trying to figure that out. Indeed, and I think look, and I just and I just noted something that the constituency shared the vote for Labour was twenty one point six percent, but their regional vote was seventeen point nine percent. And it suggests that its local candidates still has some appeal that the national Labour, Scottish Labour doesn't. But for the Conservatives, which were traditionally the toxic party in Scotland, they mm -hmm. did nearly 2% better on mm -hmm. the regional vote than the constituency and nearly gained 1% on the regional vote. Something which, if you asked yeah. me you know, a couple of weeks ago, whether the Conservatives would have gained any percentage points on the regional vote, I would have laughed in your face for that happening. So it's, yes, you're right that... It's a proud political environment that they are mm -hmm. having to operate in. And uh, I wouldn't want to be sitting around Scottish Labour right now trying to work out what to do next, aren't you? <laughs> but would you want to be sitting around the table in English Labour? <laughs> That's very true. And we'll talk about English Labour next week. Speaking of national implications, how's Keir Starmer going to feel about Scottish Labour's performance? I think the good thing for Scottish Labour in terms of their reputation in the national office is that the national office will mainly be talking about the failures they had elsewhere. Um, and I think Scottish Labour might benefit from not being hounded with negative stories about their poor performance because everyone's talking about the National Party in England and the Scottish National Party north of the border. So I think really, do I think this result is going to even be discussed once in National Labour? I'm not sure. I don't know if you disagree. I totally agree. The Hartlepool by-election took so much of the blame game that would have that so squarely did. Let's compare this to 2016, for example, because 2016 you had Labour doing okay in the English regional elections. You know there was some introspection done then, but nothing much has seemed to change on that point, frankly. And you're right. I think maybe now having the space to hopefully reflect and actually think about what to do next, because. Right now, they need a Ruth Davidson type figure. And I just can't see, Anasawa's not there yet, but you know, Ruth Davidson had five years to learn on the job rather than two months. But beyond that, if I look at the rest of the team, I mean, I'm not, maybe Jackie Bailey, but beyond that, I mean, I, I would struggle to name most of the Labour MSPs, to be honest. Well, one, one positive bit of news that I wanted to just end on and quickly talk about just before we wrap up is it was a great cycle for diversity in the Scottish Parliament and I think it's worth talking about that because they had their first woman of colour elected to the Scottish Parliament two, and the first yet yeah, two of them yes and the first wheelchair user as well um, so I thought it was a, a nice way to end to talk about there seems to be a lot of progress and I think it's the most women ever elected to the Scottish Parliament as well so this is this is all good news I think Definitely. And how do you think the Scott, the Conservatives review its performance of Douglas Ross north of the border and its wider Scottish Conservative performance? Because although not as impressive as England, as we'll talk about next week, it was still pretty impressive. So what, what Boris Johnson is government, what does this mean? I think they'll be very pleased because all that this government, I think, will want to do north of the border is, is hang on to the position they've managed to get themselves in and it feels like it's a very firm foothold for them and I think they'll be very optimistic about that performance in particular. Indeed 
But this is not the first time we'll continue to talk about Scotland as independence could continue to rear its head over this next five years. Already we had a five-hour vote just to vote for the presiding officer, deputy presiding officer in the Scottish Parliament. Because the problem with electing a presiding officer is that your party goes down in terms of seat representation. Um, so, and no party wanted to do that at this point. But nonetheless, another nod for diversity. Congratulations to Alison Johnson, who becomes the first Green Speaker of any parliament in the United Kingdom and the second female Speaker of uh, presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament. So that's another big win there. And we, are, we will also cover as a wrap up of both Wales and Scotland, what is happening in terms of reshuffles to their post-election governments. We know that Mark Draper has just announced this and we will do a final wrap up of politics um, in all the constitute parts of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland at the end of the month. But for now, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to talk about. Join us again next week where we'll be looking at the results across England and also talk about the Hart Liverpool by-election. And as always, we'll continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at, at Ballot underscore talk and leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Chen Han and until next time, we will speak to you soon.